Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we're going to talk about who should we trust when it comes to medical advice, government authority, and also the related question of who we should trust to have authority over our churches when it comes to making decisions. So to get us started today, Aaron, we're being told to trust the experts, to trust authority. First of all, is this even true or are there limits to how much we can trust, follow and obey those in charge? You know, in life, we're going to be exposed to many different uh, institutions and leaders. Uh, We're going to meet police officers, politicians, teachers, professors and the like. Uh, It's impossible to live your life without not being under someone's authority. And fortunately, in the word of God, we don't see authority as a bad thing. Uh, We see uh, functional authority differences between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the triune God. So we can't conclude that uh, authority is a a dirty word. Uh, We believe in appropriate submission. Uh, We have passages in scripture that talk to us about honoring those in authority. And so I I wouldn't want, uh, I'm just prefacing my comments. I wouldn't want anyone to think that we're anti-authority, that we're anarchists and whatnot. But one of the things that we sometimes forget is that your worldview and your approach to life is going to affect the decisions that you make. So what different differentiates human beings from the animal world is that we're not merely machines. We're not merely, you know, biological, psychological beings sort of going about our daily routines and living within our ecosystems and so forth. We are different than machines. We're different than animals. We aren't pawns at the mercy of, you know, divine forces just sort of manipulating us around like pieces on a chessboard. And we're not gods either. So we're, we don't have full knowledge. We we're limited in our understanding. Um, so when we are interacting with other people, uh, we need to remind ourselves that we are fallen spiritual beings, unlike squirrels and you know, your family dog or a cow, we are spiritual beings. And because of sin, we have inherited the effects of Adam's fall. If you read Genesis chapter three, it's very clear that we are subject to death and we are subject to death because of our sin, because we willfully rebelled against God through our forebears, Adam and Eve, and we've inherited the sin nature. Uh, we have a propensity towards sin. Uh, we're broken. You look at passages like Ephesians chapter 2, and it doesn't say that we're spiritually injured. It says we're spiritually dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. By nature, something is wrong with us. Now, fortunately, through the regenerative work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, we can be made alive in Christ. But the point I'm getting to is that when we think about those around us that have authority over us, we have to remind ourselves that they are spiritual beings. And if they are not born again by the Spirit of God, spiritually regenerate people, 
they are still dead in their trespasses and sins. And their disconnection, their disfellowship with God, their rebellion against God, their spiritual depravity is necessarily going to affect even the way they think, even the way they process knowledge and information. It's going to affect the interchange between emotions and their minds. So when they're when the unbeliever is making a decision, uh, he or she is making it from a different vantage point than a believer who's been made alive in Christ, who's been renewed, who's having their mind renewed, who understands the bigger picture. They understand who they are. They understand who God is. They understand the virtues and values of Christ. They understand, you know, the, the, um, parameters of scripture. So while we do believe that, you know, unbelievers are obviously capable of thinking and uh, becoming good at what they do. And uh, for example, if you're a physician and you're not a believer, you can be good at heart surgery. You can be good at brain surgery. Um, there, There is a certain sense in which their reasoning is still hindered by their sinfulness. We call this in theology, the noetic effects of sin. And what we mean in that doctrine, we do not mean that the mind is destroyed by sin, but that the mind is subject to things like futile thinking, uh, ignorance, rejection of certain foundational truths, and not just you know, they're not aware of John 3.16 or they don't know, they don't have a developed eschatology, but there's a f- certain futility in their thinking. So this is why we can have a, a physician that, you know, is an intelligent person that on one hand can be very effective at heart surgery, but at the same time have no problems using his scalpel to abort a child. Why? How is that possible? Because their spiritual condition is affected by their spiritual brokenness, their lack of spiritual regeneration. So whenever we are interacting with a person in a position of authority, and I I hate to use this word, but whenever we're interacting with a person in a position of spiritual authority that's not a Christian, we should always have a certain degree of suspicion. We should always sort of second guess a little bit uh, the advice or the reasons for them giving us direction, you know, in, 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 in this way or in that way, because they are affected by the reality of human depravity. And that's going to affect the way they view you, uh, the care they give to you how they apply medical science to the circumstances of life, to societal issues, how they weigh out risk and reward, um, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. Do you think a person can actually increase their ability to think well and increase their chances of not being led astray into error? Can these authorities, non-Christian people or Christian people, obviously we'd hope Christian people can increase their, in in their understanding. But what could you say to that? Yeah, well, I I, th- I think that part of our intellect, our mind, is dependent upon our g- 
genetic makeup. You know, our parents depends a bit on our early formation, the kind of education we received, uh, how, how we were, or if we were taught to think clearly, critically, logically, none of us have perfect minds. You know, our minds are influenced by the environments that we're in. You know, we make logical errors. We believe things that aren't true at times and so forth and so on. But there is a certain sense in scripture where when a person encounters a true and living God and is saved, spiritually regenerated, it's not just that you have a ticket to heaven now. God begins to do a transformative work over the way you think, the way you act, and the way you feel. I mean, we have passages at our disposal like Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord. The reverence of God is the beginning of knowledge. What, just knowledge of a few more verses? No, knowledge of life. Knowledge of who you are and who God is and what your responsibilities are. In Romans chapter 1, where Paul is issuing his scathing rebuke against broken humanity, he talks about the fact that those that have rejected God are futile in their thinking. Uh, he talks about the fact that they, they don't acknowledge God. They participate in things they ought not to do. They, they go crazy. They, they make ridiculous decisions because of their uh, sinfulness. So, in Christ, Christ is not just giving us a ticket to heaven. He's he's putting boundaries on and even expanding our emotional component. He's putting boundaries on and expanding our mental component. He's helping us to think more clearly. So when you read the Word of God and study the Word of God and meditate upon the Word of God and allow God's Spirit to take His Word and apply it to your life, there's a sense in which you can increase your intellect. You can increase your mental horsepower. You can think more clearly about life. You can see error further away than you otherwise would. You, you're able to balance a multiplicity of truths against one another as you make decisions. Whereas the unbeliever who, for example, doesn't have within their belief system, let's say the belief that we're made in the image and likeness of God, that human beings are innately valuable, that, um, what else can we talk about? Resurrection, that we have resurrection hope. They're going to, they're going to make their decisions differently. So for example, if you have the truth at your disposal, and it's actually transform your mind that you know, we, we are spiritual beings. We have a, a world beyond this one to look forward to. Well, that's going to, that's going to affect, uh, how, how you respond to fearful circumstances in life, how you weigh out risk and reward in terms of your decisions. Will I expose myself to a viral threat to potential martyrdom for a higher, cause it will it will affect your actions because you have this knowledge at your disposal that is going to change the way that you live and then you start learning more and more about the word of god and one part fits up with another part and then you add another part and, and 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 the whole puzzle of life sort of takes on broader meaning so some Im implications of this when you're when a believer is dealing with an unbeliever uh 
we we just need to remind ourselves that while unbelievers can see the parts, they can't see the whole. So they they can see many of the things that we can see and understand many of the things that we understand, but they can't necessarily see the whole. They don't see how all these beliefs that they may have actually fit into a whole, we would call it like a worldview, uh, a consistent view of um, knowledge, of purpose, these kinds of things. Uh, we should also then expect some moral inconsistency and double standards from unbelievers where, you know, again, to use this illustration, um, you know, stay home, stay safe. You know, we don't we don't want to kill anybody with a virus. Oh, we're OK with uh, people changing their gender. We're OK with, you know, aborting babies. Like It's, it's nonsense. It's 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 uh, inconsistency. It's an inconsistent moral system to to shame people into staying home under the premise that, you know, you might take other people's lives by going into the real world, but we're okay with aborting preborn children or the same people that we're trying to protect in the nursing homes. You know, we don't want to kill off our elderly. This is the messaging, right? You know, protect the LTCs. We don't want to kill off the elderly. But if one of the elderly decides it's time to have their life taken, you know, we'll help them with assisted suicide. Like it's, it's morally inconsistent, but we should expect that. We should also respect an over-reliance upon human reasons and inquiry to fix things. So this is why in our culture, we have this notion that science is the highest form of knowledge. Historical people never thought that. Science is, is one of those words, it's like you, it's been pumped up and puffed up and put in neon lights for so long, it's almost a god to itself. But if you break it all down, what really is science? It's human inquiry. It's taking your eyes and your hands and, and, and your ears, and it's looking and listening and watching and observing the created world, and then coming up with hypotheses and testing them and so forth and so on. It's, it's, it's essentially looking around you at the creative world, trying to understand how things work, what mechanisms enable you know, the, the world to um, uh, sustain itself, uh, understanding of you know, biology and chemistry and geology and all these kinds of things, all these different branches of science. We're essentially using our senses and looking out and then based upon our senses, we determine what's – in our methods, we determine what is true and what's not true. We just bundle this all up and call it science. And this just seems to be so uh, – you know, such a lofty concept. Wow, science, science, science can figure everything out. Well, historic people thought uh, – historic people are actually quite a bit more humble. They understood that human reasoning has limits. And human inquiry has limits to it. And therefore, we must rely on another form of knowing in order to arrive at truth. And that's called revelation. And revelation comes from God. So historically, we understood that the highest form of knowledge was divine revelation. But now we poo-poo that because we don't. We've assumed that science is the highest form of knowledge. Divine revelation is, by definition, not subject to the rules of science because it's knowledge that comes from beyond. So we just dismiss it. But what's the premise to dismissing divine revelation and accepting science? The premise is that humanity is its own best tool 
to determine what's true and what's false. So if you're not a Christian and you deny God and you deny divine revelation, then surprise, surprise. It's all about the science for you. It's all about the science. But because of human depravity, the science will be misused. The science will be manipulated. So the classic example in our culture today is we all know that scientifically there are male humans and there are female humans. Whether they're in an embryonic state or on their deathbed, there are male humans and there are female humans. And yes, on rare occasion, there's an anomaly where you know something gets mixed up and someone's born with uh, you know, and a, a male male genitals and it has a uterus at the same time or whatever. But that's the exception, the rule. That's an anomaly. People are born male or they're born female. But the cultural narrative is well, you can pick your own sex, your own gender. And so we sort of throw science aside. You know, the objective reality of your, your biological maleness or femaleness. Why? Because the ideology says, well, science doesn't matter in this situation. People should be able to pick their own gender. You should be able to pretend you're a man if you're a woman or a woman if you're a man. These are illustrations of the inconsistency. Sadly, okay, and this is, I think, one of the most important points. Sadly, many Christians today process life more from a secular, scientized worldview than from a sacred worldview. So they'll come to church and they'll listen to the preacher. But if the scientist says otherwise, all of a sudden there's the crisis of faith, right? And it's like, wow, the scientist says otherwise. I mean, the Bible says this about creation, but the scientist says this, or the Bible says this about the uh you know, the, the value of human life, but the scientist says this, or the Bible says this about God making us in his image, male and female. He created us, Genesis 127, but the scientist says this. So we, we have Christians now in our churches that I think are more secularized than not and actually process the world out of a secular worldview. And what the Bible calls us to is to be to be transformed in our minds, you know, Romans 12, 1. We have to have a, a transformed mind. And a transformed mind is is going to affect both our moral outlook, but also our approach to sort of, quote unquote the non-moral disciplines, the way we the way we um, study history, the way we study uh, geography, the way we study political science. Etc. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me almost as though you're saying, in essence, because I don't know that you're saying that we're we're not as Christians, obviously opposed to science, but almost like science has been hijacked, or because of the futility of the unbeliever's mind, that their approach to being able to do science isn't as good. Maybe that science has almost even taken the place of that divine revelation in that way. Would you? Is that fair to say? Or I think what I'm I'm trying to help people to understand is that, you know, our study of knowledge, our epistemology has to go beyond what we can figure out with our minds, eyes, ears, taste buds, sense of touch, and so forth. 
with our calculations, with our mathematical models, etc. These are all tools that we have at our disposal to explore the created world. Now, why would we not take full advantage of those? This is an avenue of truth, an avenue of inquiry to understand. I mean, Solomon, to use him as an example, obviously declared to be the wisest man that ever lived, had people come to him and he would lecture on things like botany, what we would call botany, right? Like how animals or how plant life functions. And he would lecture on observations he'd drawn from the physical world on animal life. So this would be like early science. We could call it, to use our word, science, where we're studying the physical world. Well, why wouldn't we want to do that? You know, we're part of the physical world. I, I love to observe systems in creation, ecosystems. You know, we have quite a few animals on our little hobby farm and I love watching uh, how they act and interact and uh, give birth and so forth and so on. I like watching, uh, I like observing trees, different species of trees and, you know, paying attention to the world around me. I'm, I'm not super interested. It's just not my thing in going into a lab and, you know, running te chemical tests on things. But I respect people who, who've been called to do that. So I'm not anti-science at all. But there, there, there are means, there is a means of accessing truth without science. And that is divine revelation. So this is a not a secondary sort of footnote Sunday morning means of accessing truth. It's fundamental. God has spoken. God has told us certain things to be true. Therefore, they are true. And we must believe them to be true. And if you are a scientized person, what I mean by that is you're a person that has put all your eggs in one basket. It's all about science, science, science. And you poo-poo divine revelation or you relegate divine revelation to some sort of sentimental drivel that's sort of the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the lesser uh, means of knowing than science. And both of them are, in fact, valid means of exploring the world. But the superior method of knowing truth is through divine revelation, hands down, because it comes directly to us from God. Not that you can't misunderstand it. You could receive divine revelation through the word of God and misunderstand it. That The problem's with you, not with the text. But what God says is more true than any equation that I could come up with or any theory that I could uh, propose based upon using my senses to explore the physical world around me. Yeah. That, okay. That's, that makes a lot of sense and very informative and helpful. I think, what would you say to the person who feels they cannot escape the lies or the spin and maybe tied to that? Where does trusting God come in? We're always going to be exposed to lies in a broken world and they can be very frustrating or depressing. Some people gravitate toward frustration as their first response. Some people gravitate gravitate towards despair as their first response. You know, when you when you hear lies, uh, half truths, falsehoods being peddled in the political realm, the public square, it it is disconcerting. So we do need to trust in the Lord because uh, He is sovereign over all things. Over 50 times in the word of God, we're told to trust in the Lord, trust him, O Lord, trust him, O Lord. But trusting in the Lord doesn't mean we throw our hands up and do nothing to combat the lies, or the falsehoods that are being peddled. Uh, we, 
we have different options at our disposal. I mean, one option would be do nothing, say nothing, just pray about it, obey and follow everything you're told, but that's not a great response. Another option would be to say something, to speak out against lies, and then pray for those in positions of authority or power, they would speak the truth. And then to buckle and obey them anyway, that's not a great option. Another option would be say something, pray about it, and then obey in like a qualified way, whereby you, if you're being given a direction or a being exposed to a truth claim by uh, you know a politician, a police officer, a teacher, a science teacher, uh, you know anybody that's sort of speaking into your life, you can pick and choose, um, debate, take some, kind of like eat the meat, spit out the bones. You can also speak out at times, disobey, especially if you're being given like a directive that's wrong. You can uh, pray about that um, and respond in the way that you think you should respond. So you, you have to process what you're being told through scripture and trust in the Lord that even if, you know, we live in a culture that's filled with lies, that's telling us lies about human worth or telling us lies about what we should live for, what our priorities are, we um, we process that, and then we don't just say, well, trust him, a Lord, you know, God's in charge, so I'm just going to go home and read my Bible and pray. We can speak out and at times disobey or push back against authority claims that are being presented to us. You know, Proverbs 3, it talks about not leaning on your own understanding, keeping the commands of God, not claiming, you know, wisdom for yourself, fearing God. Um so trust, trusting God is is really more about, again, 50 times in the Bible, trusting God is more about obedience to his word and resting in his promises than it is about being silent and doing and saying nothing and just allowing liars to have a heyday. So I, I, I want to repeat that because I think, I think I need to almost hear it again because I was sort of I think inadvertently taught growing up that trusting in God was more of a let go and let God approach. Um, but when you study scripture, I think trusting God is linked more closely to obe- obeying his word and resting in his ultimate promises. But it doesn't mean stay silent, don't do anything, just kind of let go and let God. So some applications, like how that might be applied to like uh, an interaction with, let's say, an official, because people are very curious about this right now. So if I'm interacting with an official and I'm being given a direction that's contrary to the word of God, um, we need to just remind ourselves we're not forbidden to have a viewpoint. You know, we can have a viewpoint contrary to the status quo. We're not forbidden to ask questions of the official. We can do that. Sometimes there's a win in that. We question it. Well, why do you want us to do this? What? So let me just be super relevant. Why do you want us to close our church down? Why, 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 why? Why do you want us to wear masks? Why do you want us to get the vaccine? Why do you want us to stay home and stay safe? Ask the questions. You may or may not get responses, but there's nothing wrong with asking questions, right? Uh, we're not forbidden to speak freely 
Uh, nor are we forbidden to take action, especially if we are forced to take action because someone's asking us to do something that God has called us to do. So um, I, I, I suppose my motive or one of my concerns in saying that is I, I do have this sense, having been a pastor for a long time and a Christian for even longer, that many Christians are more silent than they need to be. They are they, they are a bit confused. They have this notion that um, God expects of them to be passive in response to lies or half-truths that they're being told, whether it's from a medical expert, again, a law enforcement official, uh, a, a politician, whoever it might be. We have this notion, well, trusting God just means smiling or praying or doing nothing. And I just don't see that in scripture. Uh, we we don't just preach the word of God and let God take care of the rest. God has called us to, to act and interact with the world and to, to engage in exchanges. We, we question, we seek out truth, we we interact with authority, we we you know we ask questions. So unless by doing so you're violating some other biblical principle, like let's say, so an example of that would be if if you're called to honor your father and mother, and maybe your father and mother are Christian, and they're asking you to do something wrong or forbidding you from doing something that you should be doing, like going to church or praying or sharing your faith or whatever, you, you would be wrong to disrespect them in your approach, but you'd be right to question them. You'd be wrong to dishonor them, but you'd be right to disobey them. So unless... Sometimes you're put in those challenging circumstances. You don't. You, don't, you never want to violate one scriptural principle to fulfill another. So you never want to think, well, if I'm going to disobey, I must also be disrespectful. No, you can be respectful but disobey. Obviously, respect is a little bit subjectively determined. Um, you never want to push back, but at the same time, dishonor them and excuse yourself from dishonoring them because, well, you know, they, they said something that wasn't true. You have to balance those two out, right? So that's kind of how I I see that, um, you know, working itself out in Scripture. You're never going to be able to escape the lies. You're, you do want to trust God, but at the same time, you want to actively engage with culture and the people around you to push back against falsehoods that might be being uttered. That's good. It reminds me of the verse in Nehemiah that talks about they they prayed and they posted the guard. So there was a threat to them as they were rebuilding the wall. And oh, it's yeah. not just, we're going to pray and go to sleep. It's yeah. post the guard, right? Yeah, so that's good. Double yeah. uh, taking yeah. action, but knowing the limits of their. Yeah, that's a great, great um, example. Yeah, they look for people among them to stand in the gap at night and, um, you know, watch out for nasty people and. Uh, they, you know, they pushed back against the lies of Sanballat and all that kind of thing. So that, that's a great biblical illustration there. So just kind of pushing on the discussion to where I think we all want to, we want the answer. Should we trust, distrust, obey, disobey human authority? What's the, what's our take on that based on maybe some passages that are relevant from scripture? Well, right now, uh, this is a, a big question on many people's minds, and it used to be in the old days that John 3.16 was the most commonly quoted verse, 
And then maybe in the last 20 or 30 years, that sort of shifted to Matthew 7, 1, you know, judge not lest you be judged. But now the most uh, oft quoted scripture is Romans 13, because um, churches are still under lockdown. Churches in Toronto have been locked down for, I think, since around the end of November. And uh, we're still under restrictions and outlying places. And there's this big question about trusting, obeying authority. And right now our authorities take the form of um, a premier, uh, take the form of, you know, our, our chief medical officer of Ontario. You know, these people have something to say about what we're allowed to or not allowed to do. Um, panel of medical experts that advise them, local health unit and police services. So we're hearing from all of these authorities, which you know we, we respect, we're thankful for. Some of these people are Christians and uh, we're thankful that um, you know they're they're serving. We probably would do well to call into question whether or not, as a go forward strategy, all of these people are in necessary positions of authority. You know, we could ask questions of whether it's wise and right and necessary for us to have a, a health ministry that tells people what to do and not to do with their health, but that's that's a that's another subject. So we have all these authorities around us, and you you know you're thumbing through the New Testament. You, you come into um, Romans 13, and you know we're subject to the authority. It's uh, instituted by God. We're supposed to honor the emperor. If we resist, we incur judgment. We see a parallel passage in First Peter chapter two. Uh, verses 13 to 17, essentially teaching us the same thing. And it seems, you know, on a quick read, cut and dry. Uh, increasingly, though, uh, people are sort of looking at that and saying, you know, in, in the past, it is kind of blew through that passage. But what what is what's fascinating is not only are those are those passages very limiting upon government, um, but Jesus and the actions of the apostles also help us to understand that the authority of governors, emperors, and by extension, health officials and police officers is also very limited. It's actually very limited to a very narrow slice of responsibility. So in Romans 13, it doesn't say, uh, you know, and by the way, they're responsible for how you use your property, whether you get vaccinated or not whether you can open your churches or close your churches, how fast you can drive on the road. It doesn't get into all of that. It essentially gives them a job description, and we would just call it public justice. They wield the sword. If you are criminal in your behavior, you should be afraid of people in positions of authority like that. But it's strange that Christians nowadays have this notion that, well, that applies to everything. They have authority of whether the church should be opened or not, authority whether you should sing in church or not, authority whether you should wear a mask, authority for how close you can get to someone. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on and on, right? So let's let's just talk about Jesus for a minute. So when Jesus was talking to Pilate, you know, Pilate would be a authority figure, right? We could agree with that. He's an authority figure. No one would deny that. In John chapter 19, when uh, Pilate is talking to Jesus, uh, he says, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Yeah, I have authority, right? And he did. I have authority. 
you can almost hear him saying, hey, have you read uh, Romans 13? Now I know Romans 13 hadn't been written yet, but that idea, are you not familiar with this? I have authority. What Jesus says to him is not, well, you know what? That's a good reminder. I better remind my disciples that, you know, your, your government, you have authority. Jesus actually reminds him of God's authority. Doesn't remind him of his authority, reminds him of God's authority. Jesus says to him, well, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So I just find that really interesting that, yeah, we have this call to obey authority, but it's not absolute. Jesus puts it puts this in, uh, in uh, bold font that you don't have any authority if it wasn't given to you from above. Uh, so Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 are general statements that both citizens and officials can violate. So a, a citizen can violate that by not surrendering themselves to the government or the state, king, whatever you want to call it, in matters that they should submit themselves to. And leaders, rulers, emperors can also violate their authority by overstepping their bounds. As Pilate, this, this is the stunt Pilate tried to pull with Jesus. And later in Acts chapter 5, the authorities charged, that's a pretty weighty word, they charged the apostles not to speak anymore in Jesus' name, right? We don't want you filling Jerusalem with your terrible teaching. And they said, we'll obey God rather than men. Well, you can't then exegete Romans 13 and say it's a carte blanche across the board. There's no exceptions to rule. If they say you got to jump, you need to say how high. If they say you need to social distance, you have to do it. If you close your church down, you better close your church down or you're sinning. I'm hearing of people are being censored and disciplined by their churches for speaking out against the government who is asking God's people to violate what God has clearly called us to do. So we, we, we don't need to trust and obey every edict, every person in a position of authority because, well, they're the expert, right? They were elected to that role or they went to school for it. No, we can question, we can push back, we can um, you know, have conversations preferably. So there, there's good reasons and bad reasons to resist. So there, there are people out there that are innately rebellious and they, you know, they love this kind of stuff. Oh, Pastor Aaron, he's calling us to disobey the government. I've always wanted to hear pastor say that. No, there's, there's bad reasons to resist the government. They would include, well, I just want to be comfortable. You know, I love my comfort or, you know, kind of this person that has a, this you know, radical libertarian, radical freedom view. Um, let's, let's suppose they, you know, they like guns and it's like, well, I have a gun. I'll shoot it wherever I want. I'll shoot it up a hill, down a hill, through the trees, through someone's shrubs. I don't care who's on the other side, who's on the other side of the hill. I'll do whatever I want. Well, that's the kind of person that's going to destroy other people's lives or at least put them at risk. So, the government steps in and says, no, you don't, you don't shoot up hills because the bullet goes over the hill and someone might be on the other side of the hill. You don't shoot your firearm within city limits, you know, through your neighbor's backyard. Like you don't do stuff like that. So these would be bad reasons for people to resist the government. 
it, it would also be a bad idea for us to say, well, before we obey, we want all the information. So you want us to lock down? We want, you know, 1,500 pages of written information in a week at our disposal on the board desk of our church, and then we'll decide what to do. I mean, we have to have just a function. We have to have some level of initial trust in people in positions of authority that they, they must know something about what they're doing. But bad reasons to obey would be when it's disobedient to God. So when they say, think about this, when they say you cannot meet in person in in any full meaningful way for basically a year now, half of it, about half of it, you couldn't meet at all in person. Um, but you can meet online. But then we're going to censor you online. It's a huge mistake for churches, by the way, sidebar, to trust in online technological solutions to meet the needs of their people because the censorship police are all over it. So you're like, you know, we're just going to, we're just going to, you know, Facebook live out our stuff and then you get censored. Right. So this, I wouldn't, I don't trust in the uh, technology out there to always be on our side and available for us. Um, so it, it would be a bad reason to obey if we're asked to, you know, stop preaching the gospel, stop ministering to people in ways that God has called us to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's reasons to, uh, good reasons to obey, good reasons not to obey. We have to factor a lot of things in. Are my decisions putting others at risk, truly at risk? We got to weigh that out. I think at this point we know that meeting as a church is clearly not putting 99.9999999% of people at risk at all. There's there's no justifiable reason to close down churches and forbid us from doing meaningful ministry. Uh, if we're forbidden to meet, you can't just go on and on and on. It has to be temporary. Otherwise, we're being forced to you know violate passages of scripture like you know Hebrews 10.25. And it's not the government's, it's not my my job to wait on the sidelines month after month for a year, maybe for two years or three years for the government to finally justify their decisions, but I just blindly obey, we can question, we can interact with, we can resist at times. At the same time, you know, being prayerful and humble in our approach and response. Hey, Aaron, just before we go, can you share any updates that are relevant from the news in the last week with our listeners that may be interesting to them? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple interesting stories uh, that have uh, one story and one kind of report that came out in the last couple of days that, you know, are worth our people exploring. I'm, I'm always a little bit careful not to, I don't want to be guilty of fake news, but we had a situation here in Windsor-Essex County where our local uh, health official, was uh, filmed at a uh, gathering uh, that does appear pretty strongly to be against the uh, Reopening Ontario Act, against the regulations. There's a group of people, many of whom aren't masked, many of whom aren't social distancing, uh, eating in the gymnasium of a mosque after some sort of a wedding. And the reason why that should concern us, I mean, I've said before that I think people should be allowed to do this, but the reason why this should concern us is because, you know, the, the fellow that's complicit in this is the director of health for Windsor, Essex. And, you know, he's been pretty vocal against, uh, you know, people breaking the rules. So we have yet another 
of many examples of people who are in positions of leadership that are, you know, breaking the rules and this should concern us. The second one, if, if the listeners want to search this out, and by the way, that previous one, you can search for the article on that in the Windsor Star. But the uh, second one is an article that has come out in the National Post by uh, Derek Burney. And uh, in that article, it's entitled, Canada is Caught in a Perfect Storm of Dysfunction. Muddling through is not the answer. So he's kind of going through criticizing uh, the, the, the heavy-handed response of government officials to what's going on in relationship to the pandemic response. But I want to read for the listeners a fascinating statement that he makes about the church. I've been saying this since the first lockdown. He says, quote, with some notable exceptions, Canadian churches are accelerating their declining relevance by meekly accepting restrictions and closing services entirely, action which violates sacred fundamental freedoms. Wow. <laughs> Talk about a punch in the mouth, right? That here we have uh, the National Post saying to us, saying to the, to, the, to the world, the church, by not being open, by not pushing back, is proving its irrelevance to culture and society. And I think he's absolutely, sadly, right that churches that are not open and, and are compliant and are not questioning, they're not pushing back, they're not dialoguing with government, not demanding better treatment, they're, they think they're loving their neighbor, but they are, they're making themselves look like fools. They're just saying to the church, the church is not essential, it's not relevant, it's not important for us to meet. And in that respect, rather than advancing yourself as a faithful witness in culture, you are proving your irrelevance. And uh, it, that's going to be a, a very deep hole for us to, you know, to climb out of. Well, thanks for sharing those uh, two articles that you mentioned. We'll have those linked in the, uh, the notes for the podcast. And if you're looking for more great articles online, uh, a sister site of ours, uh, Liberty Coalition Canada, has a great resource page with a lot of up-to-date articles from across the web that are kind of aggregated there. And so you can make use of those. Thank you so much to each of you who are listening. And uh, we will catch you next week on another episode of the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Mm -hmm.